Hello everybody and welcome to Lighting the Pipes. Thank you very much for joining us here today. My name is Scott Powell and I'm joined as always by my reader in arms, my co-host, cousin extraordinaire, Joshua Dwight Gordon Taylor. Hello. Hello, pal. Uh, I'm excited, buddy, to be here today because it's been a few weeks since we've got together for a book review and our... It has. Our Sherlock Select season, which was really fun. That little series is now done. and uh, Nostalgia is a great thing. Nostalgia is a wonderful thing, yeah. And it was really fun looking through those, uh, looking through those older stories and kind of brushing off the dust and you know, representing them for listeners. I certainly enjoyed going back through them with you. But no, we're continuing our season today with a look through our second Graham Greene novel of the year. I guess it would be the first Graham Greene novel of this year, because I think we read The Confidential Agent in 2020, did we not? No, it wasn't. It was Actually, this no, year. it was in 2021. Yeah. Man, time flies so fast in this uh, day and age. But it then really again, does, when, yeah. When your equivalent of your life is almost like you're inside a submarine, you know, for the past <laughs> two years or so. Yeah. Echolocation, man. <laughs> Echolocation, indeed. And we're echoing uh, back here, right, for our, our listeners. At least our, our listeners were able to get, um, you know, I think even though we, it's been a little while since we recorded an episode together, along with the Sherlock Selects, we did pepper you with some, you know, recent books, too. Mm-hmm. We, uh, I think the last book that we did was the first Rebus book. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then previous to that was... Well, I turned 40, and it's proof <laughs> I'm getting old. Uh, I can't remember what our previous book was to that. Oh, That's no, no, sorry. Right. Officially, our last, well, I guess if you listen to the Bond by Numbers podcast, we did a look at uh, Colonel Sun by Kingsley, Kingsley Amos. Amos, yeah. King- Kingsley Amos, yes. But that wasn't part of Lighting the Pipes. That was part of our other podcast, which I've just sort of like shamelessly plugged unknowingly. But Don't worry, it'll all come there, clean in the it wash. It'll all it'll come, come clean, clean in, the in, the in the wash. Exactly. <laughs> so, yes, we covered Graham Greene last year. We did The Confidential Agent, a very interesting spy thriller, introduced us to Graham Greene. Um, we talked about, you know, his life and the controversies and his look at things and, you know, his uh, legacy, I suppose, in literature. So we went through his background and whatnot. So with The Quiet American... Um, I think kind of serendipitously it fits so well into our structure of the uh, of mystery novel because in a way the story is a mystery that we that we are, that we are trying to solve in our own way mm-hmm. whereas the narrator is trying to solve it for different reasons in his own mm-hmm. mind mm-hmm. Um, would be sort of a superficial way to read the whole situation so it it, it, does, it does work as a sort of like a who done it wrapped up mm-hmm. in a love triangle colonial allegory maybe <laughs> Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right, man. And I don't think that you are um, over-egging the pudding when you talk about it as a colonial allegory, because though written in a colonial period, it is very, um, late very on period, the nose. Very, late colonial period, but it's very on the nose, Josh, isn't it, this book? Yes. Now, as you said, buddy, we have already gone through Graham Greene, his life, his times, if you wish to uh, kind of forward it that way. And we encourage everybody to head back to our episode on The Confidential Agent uh, to get a listen to that, because we, we went through it with a fine-tooth comb. Well, not really, but we went through it in good detail. And, you know, anything that kind of touches upon his life and times as a journalist overseas, which would obviously influence the creation of this story, we did deal with a little bit there. So we'll go into a little bit of context here for this story, but mm-hmm. most of the Graham Greene bio, check it out on our earlier show for The Confidential Agent. So one thing I glossed over in the bio last year was mm-hmm. that Greene was, in addition to being a writer, he was also a journalist. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, he was a war correspondent for the Times and Le Figaro, and he, I, I guess, served, I wouldn't be served would be the right term, but he was stationed in French Indochina from 51 to 54. Mm-hmm. And it was when he was traveling back from Saigon, uh, back to Saigon, I should say, from uh, Bentre province in um, French Indochina, which, of course, is Vietnam. He was accompanied by an American aid worker. And this American aid worker went on and on about a third force in Vietnam. And so it said that this person was the inspiration for not one of our principals, but sort of our victim, I guess, in a mm-hmm. mystery novel sense, Alden Pyle. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting because a lot of people assume that this was based, that Pyle was based off of Edward Lansdale. Now, Edward Lansdale was the uh, CIA operative in Vietnam at this time in the mid-50s that basically worked with them with the militias to form up a democratic coalition to take to take the gov- to, to to take control of uh, of of uh, Saigon. Mm-hmm. Um, once the French were pulling out because the Vietnamese because the uh, Viet Nim, uh, the Viet Minh, which later becomes the Viet Cong, uh, was a, such a threat at this time that the French were bowing out almost or, 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 or were going to. So it basically helped them form up as a democratic government in in Vietnam by like fifty five. But of course, this didn't last very long. There was power struggles; everything fell apart, and then of course you get the Vietnam War. Um, just to go into detail, so French Indochina, Vietnam has been occupied by the French for a hundred years now. By this point, it's been quite a while. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. So this Vietnam, all the environs that we see in the story, is under a colonial control of France at this time still. But that power is dwindling, and there are other forces coming to the fray. There's the communists led by Ho Chi Minh mm-hmm. uh, coming from the north. And, of course, they're going to, they want to take back their country in the name of communism because Ho Chi Minh is, was a Marxist, trained as such. He even served in uh, or took part in meetings with like men like Lenin uh, during the early 20th century. Uh and then went back to Vietnam to kind of raise his own communist army against the um, the oppressors in in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So Edward Lansdale was the American that basically led to this um, this democratic control of Saigon and South Vietnam, and uh, that's people who that's that's what people thought that Edward, that Eldon Pyle was inspired from. But in fact, it's not true. It's in fact there's just this nameless American aid worker who probably drove Graham Greene nuts uh, during this trip. <laughs> one of many. Uh, yeah, one of many. One of many. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of caricatures of Americans in this story. In fact, there's mm-hmm. a lot of caricatures and archetypes in the story in general because to me, it's a very allegorical story. But mm-hmm. we have uh, Fuong, of course, uh, our, our female lead in this story. Uh, that was the name of a friend that he uh, made that he had an acquaintance with there. I don't know what exactly what was was their details of their acquaintance, but it was someone he knew. He even devoted he even uh, dedicated the book to her and another friend as well. But the reason why he chose her name for the object of everyone's affections in this story, the girl you know that's being kind of like fought over by these two colonial powers, is because her name sounded gentler on the English tongue for his readers, and he even admits that he even mm-hmm. said that in dedication. That's so. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, take that what you will. At least he was an honest man in the way he spoke about things. And, of course, we have mentioned that uh, 
there, you know, there's, there is a historical context to this story. And one of the characters that appears in here, although you don't really see him, but he's talked about, is General Tay. He was a real-life person uh, who broke from the established Kaudaist peerage and formed his own militia to combat the French occupiers and the Viet Minh. These were, of course, the communist general the guerrillas that were led by Ho Chi Minh. Uh, he negotiated with Lansdale to join with this man, Ngo Dien Diem, to form up the AVRN, the Southern Vietnamese Army. When they took Saigon, he led the triumph. But this course, as I said, falls apart. And Tay himself was assassinated amidst the power struggles that would lead to the Vietnam War. So that's really the background in which um, we're talking about here. The 1950s, we have a, a British journalist like uh, Graham Greene traveling through Vietnam, recording his findings, talking about uh, writing as editorials, you know, on his experiences there and putting and in his book here, I think he's just kind of expressing his thoughts on the whole situation in a very kind of upfront forward sort of way while sort of bringing it under the guise of a love of a like a love story slash political thriller yeah yeah for sure and um we've got a uh, we've got a summary put together josh by you which uh, we're going to cut to now in just a minute but before we do that and then get on over to our pipes and our review proper i'd just like to thank everybody again we're back yes. now with uh, we're back now with some good titles coming up in the next few weeks and we're looking forward to bringing those to you. So we hope you enjoy our run-through of The Quiet American. And, uh, you know, if you agree or not with our take, let us know. You can find <laughs> us on uh, on Instagram at Lighting the Pipes, or you can email us at lightingpipes at gmail.com. We uh, always appreciate the feedback and uh, any suggestions for further reading, because this season, of course, has been all about, uh, well, almost all about kind of first novels in in series by authors. But we have peppered, like we have here today with The Quiet American, we've peppered our reading series with, um, you know, the odd bit of potpourri. Yeah, I think we really enjoyed The Confidential Agent, you know, despite our criticisms for some of its characters mm-hmm. in the storyline. But I think we enjoyed Graham's, Graham Greene's writing. So... It was good to get back into him, and I, you know, this was such a. I remember this. Um, the, the film adaptation of this mm-hmm. movie uh, came out in two when it, back in two thousand, and that's when everyone was talking about Michael Caine and, and whatnot. And then, of course, September eleventh happened just as this movie was released, yeah, and that movie yeah. kind of got forgotten completely, mm-hmm. along with Brendan Fraser's career. Of course, his career sort of ended for other reasons. Other at the reasons, time. yeah. And I wouldn't say yeah. ended, but certainly it, it was affected. It was affected, yeah, because he's he's made, he's made a big comeback now. Like uh, mm-hmm. uh, just to tie in with Bond, which is our other series, uh, he's now on the Doom Patrol with Timothy Dalton. So mm-hmm. good for Brendan Fraser. I always enjoyed Encino Man, despite Polly Shore. Uh, <laughs> I thought I thought Brendan was really good. He's funny in George of the Jungle, and I also thought he was really good in. It was, it was really fun in the, in the Mummy. So yeah. uh, you're also forgetting Gods and Monsters with Ian McKellen. Oh yes, that's he's right. very yeah. very good in that. Yeah. Yeah, he just has it. To me, I feel like The Rock or someone like has his career now in in a way, like the <laughs> same kind of. Although I would say yeah, they're very yeah. different personalities. But yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, they fill the same similar roles, I guess you could say. Anyway, right. Brendan Fraser, uh, good for him. Uh, Michael Caine, good for him. I, I haven't seen this movie yet. I downloaded it. I didn't get a chance to watch it. I'm going. Mm-hmm. I'm going to. I want to kind of separate myself from the book before I see the film. Yeah, for uh, sure. I love Michael Caine. Uh, Philip Noyce, he directed mm-hmm. uh, Patriot Games and uh, The Clear and Present Danger. So I'm looking. For, I, I love those movies, and he produced Hunford October as well. So I'm sure he's really good at doing a political thriller with yeah. a bit of love in there. So I'm really looking forward to exploring uh, that movie down the road. 
And maybe we'll talk about it, you know, uh, briefly at the beginning of an episode. Who knows? Yeah. Right now, Josh, let's uh, let's cut over to your summary. By all means. In the quiet American, Graham Greene's 14th novel, we are plunged into the middle of the civil strife brewing in French Indochina circa 1952 to 1955, wherein we meet Thomas Fowler, a 50-something veteran British journalist stationed in Saigon. Fowler has been working the political beat in the war-torn region for two years now. He resides in an apartment overlooking the Rue Catana in Saigon. He is married, unhappily with his wife home in England, with no children. She won't divorce him because of religion. He is currently having a physical relationship with Fuong, a beautiful young Vietnamese woman from the Sholong district. We learn from Fowler's first-person narration that they met at a nearby dance hall and that she herself was employed as a dancer. Fuong has a sister who works as a secretary at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon, and she is looking for a good partner with money for her sister. They are waiting for Alden Pyle, their mutual American friend and our titular character. There is soon a knock at the door, and it is an officer of the Saigon police, who order Fowler and Fuang to come with him. Fowler has been summoned by Vigo, the commanding officer of the Surete. From Vigo they learn that Fowler is dead. His body was found under the bridge to Daco, seemingly bayoneted as the stab wound on the corpse would indicate. But the real cause of death was that he had been drowned in the mud. Murder is murder, and dead is dead, but to the woe of Joe, the U.S. economic attache, as well as Pyle's superiors in the CIA, as it turns out, there are no immediate answers as to who killed Pyle, and perhaps there will never be. Fowler recalls his first meeting of Alden Pyle, and it is our first meeting of the man as well. He is in his twenties, Ivy League educated from good New England money. It's an antagonistic relationship from the start, though Fowler does admire Pyle's honesty and straightforwardness. At first, we learn that Pyle is an adherent of York Harding, a fictional political theorist who pushes on to Pyle the idea that the East requires a third force. And Indochina, re Vietnam in particular, is his testing grounds for this theory. With its French imperial masters and Marxist guerrillas of the Viet Minh, led by Ho Chi Minh, supported by the Chinese, Pyle aims to make the third force in Vietnam that of Western democracy, hopefully to be administered by Republican rebel, the Kadaoist General Tay. But these political dichotomies are not what sour Fowler against Pyle. It is soon revealed that Pyle has romantic intentions for Fuang. With his little bubble about to be burst by this interloper, Fowler grows to dislike Pyle. Pyle is a naive Boy Scout who Fowler sees meddling in things that he has no business interfering with, such as Vietnam and Fowler's own happiness. Pyle is in the sights of Fuang's sister, as his financial prospects bring great advantage to her family if Fuang was to marry Pyle. Pyle himself is in love with Fuang, and amidst whatever work he has taken care of for the CIA in Saigon, he heads into the war zone up north to track down Fowler, who is on assignment with the French army in the besieged town of Fat Diem. The reason for this death-defying unexpected visit? To ask Fowler to approve his marrying Fuang, of course. Pyle makes clear that he will be a good husband to Fuang. He will be able to give her a stable life back in America, with wealth and family. 
Pyle does not approve of the ongoing dalliance between the middle-aged, very married Fowler and the twenty-something Fuang, and believes he is beyond reproach for asking Fowler for his blessing. Fowler has been keeping correspondence with his wife Helen. At this time, the Anglican Church held sway over many of its people, and divorce was simply not done. And if it was, one better make sure the ex-spouse had died before remarrying. Fowler has asked her permission, but she has written back and the answer is still no. Another hammer falls for Fowler when the editor of his newspaper asks him to return to England to be their senior foreign editor. The refusal of his wife to divorce from their mutually unhappy marriage prevents him taking Fuang back to England and out of the arms of Pyle. A further sting is added by the annoying friendly nature of Pyle and his wish to be best friend despite trying to steal his woman away. An American, a Western Democrat, and an Englishman of an imperial power fighting over a woman in Vietnam, both proclaiming to offer what is best for her? What could possibly go wrong there? It's clear that the allegory factory is open 24-7 in Graham Greene's cerebellum. But when Fowler receives a letter from Helen, he lies and tells Fuang that he may be on the cusp of getting his divorce. Is Fuang content with this? We don't know because we never have access to what she is thinking. It does set Pyle back, however, and he returns to whatever CIA business he had been conducting. More on that later. On another excursion with Pyle, the two men are headed back to Saigon in Fowler's car when the engine conks out. It is clear that the fuel has been let out by the insurgents in Tanyin. Not far from the road where they have broken down is a guard tower held by two Vietnamese soldiers. With night approaching, the two men ascend the tower and spend most of the evening there as, ex as the explosion of rebel attacks are heard in the distance. While keeping an eye on the two beleaguered guards, which Pyle has managed to keep down at gunpoint, they discuss Fuang. Soon, the Viet Minh arrive and the two barely escape the destruction of the guard tower via rocket launcher. Fowler and Pyle flee into the brush, but Fowler is shot in the leg and Pyle bravely escorts them both to the road, to the next fort, and to safety. Fowler recovers and begrudgingly must endure the fact that Pyle saved his life. This does not prevent Fowler from going to sources, however. An East Indian, Domingas, is the name of the source and he is someone whom Fowler has used on occasion. Fowler follows a lead to one Mr. Chu, a Chinese man who owns a garage in the, in the Chinese district of Saigon. Chu is older than Fowler and a chain smoker. He allows another Chinese man, Mr. Heng, to be his proxy. From Heng, Fowler learns that Pyle has been accessing plastic mold, as in plastique, for General Tay, the proposed leader to Pyle's third force. His antagonism towards Pyle is now arranging from sheer jealousy to moral repugnancy. With his relationship and the country in which he has become very passionate about suddenly threatened, Fowler lies to Fuang that his wife has finally granted the divorce in question and that he is not being transferred. Unfortunately for Fowler, Fuang's sister has gotten hold of this letter from Helen and told Fuang about his deceit. Pyle confronts Fowler about it and after a row of romantic rivalry mixed with ideological resentment, Pyle tells Fuang of the deception. Fuang leaves Fowler and goes off to live with Pyle. The narrative returns to the present day where Vigo interviews Fowler over cards, letting him know that Pyle's dog, an adopted black chow, has been found dead, not far from where Pyle's body was found. It is clear Vigo is, is mentioning this to probe Fowler about the murder. And we, the reader, are getting the intended impression that Vigo suspects Fowler is involved. With the chasm now open between these two men in the aftermath of Fowler's lies, we as an audience start to wonder. But our thoughts head to the back of our mind as we return to the past and read of bicycle bombs going off through Saigon, no doubt these attacks stemming from Pyle and his third wave, and the plastic explosives he has provided. From Heng, Fowler learns of Operation Bicyclette, 
wherein the moles he has shown earlier were made to resemble bicycle pumps and distributed throughout the city. Incensed, Fowler tries to get hold of Pyle. He has kept Fuanga and himself at a distance from Fowler. And while we learn Fowler has been ordered by his paper to extend his work in Saigon, he is rather aimless. In one jarring, disturbing passage, we accompany Fowler aboard a French bomber and watch as they bomb an innocent sampan boat with the French officer later explaining basically that orders are orders and that you have to pick a side. When Fowler returns, Pyle is waiting for him and they nearly come to an understanding. Pyle beams at them, but is put off by Fowler's warning to not place trust in York Harding, nor can he trust General Tay. Fowler then tells him to leave and take Fuang with him back to America. Of course I always value your advice, Thomas, is the reply. The bicycle bombs only maimed a single individual, but we soon find out this was only the rehearsal for something much worse. A much larger bomb is detonated in Place Garnier, a large urban shopping district just nearby where Fowler is enjoying coffee. The explosion jolts the cafe as well, knocking over tables and mirrors as pandemonium reigns nearby. When a near-deaf Fowler reaches the epicenter, he finds the place ravaged, debris everywhere, bodies of men, women, and children spread across the square, and that Fuang's favorite milk bar has been utterly destroyed. For exposition's sake, Pyle is not far from the situation, and Fowler airs his concerns to this smooth operator. While Fowler is believed to know Fuang was not at the bar, as the bombing did occur at the exact same time at which she would visit the establishment, Pyle informs him that he told her not to go to the bar that day. Fowler and we, the reader, rationalize the terrifying horror of this moment, that Pyle was responsible for what happened. To his credit, it was meant to take out military personnel only during a parade, but that parade was postponed and instead hundreds of afternoon shoppers were injured or killed. Fowler returns to Hang and lets him know that it was Pyle who engineered the bombing. Hang suggests that a meeting with his associates and Pyle is of the utmost importance, and Fully aware of what this portends, Fowler vacillates. He visits Pyle one last time to convince him to stop this madness, but Pyle doubles down on the altruism and the Yorkarding. And when he confronts him about all the innocents that were killed in the bombing, Pyle chalks up the collateral damage as casualties of a just war. Soon afterwards, Fowler informs Deng that he will comply with their request. Plans are made for Fowler and Pyle to catch up at dinner, either at the Vieux Moulin restaurant at the other end of Dachau Bridge, or later at Fowler's apartment. Either way, Pyle will have to cross the bridge where Deng and his men are waiting. Fowler doesn't stay at the Vieux Moulin very long. Granger, the unlikable coarse American journalist, is partying despite worrying over his son's polio affliction that has now taken a turn for the worse. After this brief encounter, Fowler soon leaves and returns to the apartment where our story begins. We are not made privy to the final moments of Alden Pyle, of his dark fate. Our narrator has not been dealing out the details for a proper whodunit. Instead, we have been given a confession. And while Fowler deals with his own guilt whilst chasing the dragon to Fuang's opium pipe and enjoying her renewed physical company, we the reader are left to debate whether Fowler is truly guilty. And Mr. Green is left a bundle of ambiguity at our doorstep to compound this question.
Well done, Mr. Taylor. Very nice, very nice summary there. And uh, I, I like the way you picked up on those allegorical points. I know we kind of teased them there at the beginning. I say tease, but anyone who's read the book um, knows that it's not really a subtle point in the story. So uh, it's been a tease for us so far, talking about the allegory. But you did a yeah. good job there with your summary and bringing those out. And I think now our pipes will just kind of, you know, rip the rest of its body apart. Yeah, the allegories are very... Um how do I put this? Think of like a ship. And then when you like an old, I talk about an old timer ship, right? You know, you have to you take it ashore and you got to clean it. You got to get rid of the barnacles on there, right? Well, I feel that, you know, these allegories are barnacles on the hull of that ship and you got to scrub them off. And they're so easy to point out. Yeah, but Green yeah. just left them there right there for you to see them, to scrape them off so that you can get to at least to some sort of a story underneath it. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. no matter what, once you get those allegories out of the way, the ship can then sail and still be an enjoyable story. Yes. Now, before getting Which too far, was allegorical. <laughs> but before getting too far into the investigation, let's let's start by reminding our listeners uh, what our pipes are all about, because it's our scoring system here on Lighten the Pipes, and uh, we take it quite seriously, don't we, buddy? Very seriously. Mm-hmm. So we've got five marks for five different categories. We have principles, investigation, perpetrator, environs and secondary or supporting characters. So that gives you, if you're playing the home game, a total of 25 marks out of which any text that we review can be scored. And then we like to sort of uh, use that index scoring as a as a, a method of, but not the only method of, ranking and uh, kind of favoring texts by the time our series is over. But really, it's, it's just a, it's a tool that we use, a measuring stick to get discussion going. Yes. So let's start, and my friend. Our, yeah, and for our pipes today, I say we go standard, just have Fuang just like pack that thing full of opium and let's <laughs> chase the dragon. <laughs> chase the dragon, my friend. Let's begin then with principles. Uh, we've got two principles, although Fowler, our narrative, our narrator is is really the principal. Alden Pyle is, I suppose, an antagonist type, but I think we're going to have to mm. we're, we're going to have to get into that a bit too. Um, yes. You know, Josh, I like Thomas Fowler. Uh, I liked, I, do too. I liked his cynicism. I believed in his cynicism, I should say. It's very clear that war disturbs him. But it's not really until Pyle, this idealist American, enters his life and kind of threatens his comfort in Indochina that he looks at America's threat as serious. It's kind of like he, he, he is with a soft conscience um, taking advantage of this foreign opportunity that he has you know and that's until, part of cynicism right that's part of his cynicism and it's not until Pyle comes in that he starts to see it as a threat now this of course is what's going to lead us shortly into a chat on allegory but i mean if, if i was just to say a bit more about fowler um and those of you who have read the book and i'm guessing you have if you're listening to us right now i feel as though you know he he does respect the Vietnamese, but he takes them very much for granted. Like, he knows enough to know that they deserve their own culture and their freedom. I mean, I think that comes through very clearly in the narrative. But he, yes, he doesn't... Yes, he's he sympathetic. Doesn't, he's sympathetic, but he doesn't quite care enough about them to liberate uh, Fuang from his own selfish desires. And he does very much play and prey on her affections. So... He, yes, he has sympathy, know. but he doesn't have mm. empathy. Mm-hmm. Then you put yourself in the shoes of those people, yeah. and then you do something about it, because that's what mm-hmm. empathy usually connotes, right? Whereas yeah. in this case here, he's sympathetic, but he's also enjoying, I suppose, the uh, 
the I guess the the fruits of the labors of the colonialists. You know what I mean? Because yeah. now he can leave his wife be home in Eng- life home mm-hmm. in England, and he can you know enjoy. Uh, a, a young twenty-year-old Vietnamese woman, mm-hmm. uh, without you know, and, and kind of live in his own sort of paradise. Like he almost sort of like infantilizes it as almost like a, not not just Thuong, but mm-hmm. he also sort of finds Vietnam a sort of escapism, and and that way he exoticizes it, and then and in, and by that way, I think in a way he unintentionally other is otherizes it as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, you, you you know, like no matter what, he is still taking advantage, even though it's more subtle. Oh yes, and I, I think yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, I think and, Green was definitely on that, and I have a feeling that when Green was in Saigon, I mean, we know that he was a very a tempestuous man, full mm-hmm. of many passions, mm-hmm. and he had affairs and whatnot. I haven't read anything about him actually, you know, doing what uh, Fowler does mm-hmm. in, in in his time in Saigon. So he must have looked at it as a very professional. And this is probably what he saw of, of like the journalists that he met there. Like, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if someone like you know Granger, for example, yeah, Bill Granger. I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if if Bill Granger was someone that he met every day. Oh, of you know? course, yeah. And that's his yeah. typical American, right? So mm-hmm. typical American, very rough, very rowdy. But we'll get to Granger in a, in, in a few moments. Um, just coming back to Fowler and something that you said about how he otherizes the situation. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that this is where Edward Syed and all of the sort of Orientalism of that, you know, that, that the post-colonial school of criticism really comes in, into focus here. There is very much that guiltless otherizing that Fowler does. And he feels entitled, even though he criticizes the entitlement of the American party once it arrives. Um, he is entitled himself because he's like the old popular kid at school who now watches this young fresh kid come in and turn the heads, you know? He's the guy who used to run things, but now the playground is being run by another power. And I mean, that, that might be a simplistic, silly metaphor, but really we're dealing with a changing of the guards here in colonial yes. terms. And I, I feel like we're getting through this narration um, the cynicism of someone whose personal life might not uh, end up the way he wants because of this. Professionally, he's going to be the emasculation okay. caused yeah, by that yeah, change. Yeah, absolutely. Regard. So I really liked Fowler's recognition of his own bias. Like the narrative that yes. Graham Greene produces is very complex and it is very, very textured. Uh, in a way, I think that makes this a powerful read from a characterization point of view. Like you might not like either of these characters, but it's very difficult to read the book and not feel like their complexity leaves a mark on yeah, you. They yeah, they yeah. Exactly. They were three-dimensional. They had flaws. There was nothing that indicated, you know, that the writer was lionizing them whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cynicism was there with the author and the character was sharing that same cynicism with the author. Mm-hmm. But there's also complexities, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be devil's advocate, we were talking yeah. about yeah. how Fowler uh, doesn't really get into the whole political situation until it affects him. Mm-hmm. I think that there's an argument that when that bomb goes off and at the milk bar and kills everyone and kills all, you know women and children and yeah. we get that those very vivid well written but awful mm-hmm. descriptions mm-hmm. you know of of the of the uh the after effects of the blast mm-hmm. it does two things it i i think it brings his sympathy i think it brought in his in his own way his sympathy to the situation and i mean that's a very human thing we see that we're emotionally affected by it, and then we're pulled in, mm-hmm. and then immediately, though, because it doesn't really affect us, 
it could go back to her lives. So mm-hmm. you have someone like Fowler coming from the background that he does, and he comes to Saigon, and he's there, he's doing his job, he's adapting to the ideology that he was born with, and trying to make that work with what he's, you know, what he's given here. And then the first thing that he does is sort of his assimilation into society is that he takes a, a native woman, a, a local woman, uh, and that's how he sort of connects emotionally. And that's how we connect as people, unfortunately. Like, we can't always say that we're born altruists, you know, like, mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. these situations. We have to we have to become that situation. And I think the bombing in the square is very uh, ind- indicative of that, that yeah. Yeah. It, it brings to the forefront. And it also cements narrative-wise why he needs, why he's able to go along with Pyle's murder, it's, essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and like, that, that allows us done. as readers to sympathize with his motivations for that. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. It's, he but at he the same then, in that moment, grows complicit. Yeah, but then there's that uh, that double edged sword going. Well, what he's doing is is he doing it because we wonder? Is he doing it because maybe he was moved by what he saw and he wants to help? But he also wants Pyle out of the picture as a romantic right. rival. Yeah. We don't we don't deny that that's not at the back of his mind, and he doesn't mm-hmm. either. Uh, but nope. he tries to put it away, and I think that's why he goes back to the pipe, you know, yeah. um, just as a way to escape that, and in a, and that's why people, you know, do those things is because they want to escape, and uh, but now he can't. He came here to escape in his own way from his marriage, but now and and he, and he loves the place in his own kind of way. It's like my place of escape. But at the, by the beginning, he was blind to all the stuff that was going on there because it didn't really affect him personally until it does. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So. I think that's very human. And I was just, for some reason, it just reminded me of, uh, like, look at Oscar Schindler and how he's portrayed in Schindler's List. Like, he's there. He's a war profiteer. He's there for making money. He's indifferent to what's going on because he has to be, well, not to mention the fact that, you know, if he did say anything at the time, he would probably have been shot or killed or something anyways. But it takes certain things to make him all of a sudden realize of what is really going on, the horror that he's taken part in, that he decides to take action and change it for the better. So no one is born a hero. And I'm not saying that Fowler is a hero, but I'm just trying to say is that his motivations, the complexity of his character is very human. And this is what Green really um, achieves in this novel, in my opinion. Yeah, well, the other character, of course, the other side... To that, um, yes. to that hero, uh, that failed hero, that tragic hero, or anti-hero, I guess, maybe. Anti-hero. That's the best way to yeah, describe way. him. Is, of course, Alden Pyle, this 32-year-old naive uh, CIA agent um, on an economic aid mission. Now, he's very by the book, and he's very indoctrinated, at least when we first meet him. Now, we're Ivy never, League schooled. Yep, and we're like, never quite sure if, if it's a... Bubble. If it's a costume, if if it's a role that he's just so well trained in, like what's he like when he really takes his shoes off? We never really get to yes. see it because he is so consistent no, we don't in that in that idealism. And I think Graham Greene is doing that deliberately. I think he's trying to really promote his own feelings of America at this time. That they yes, are just he's been pushing, on the nose. pushing their way in there, acting the way. And I mean that that gains sympathy itself, like because his innocence and his naivety is always something throughout the story which makes us feel like, well, they're not doing right, but man, they sure believe in what they're doing. And isn't that right? You know, isn't there a sense of truth and a sense of righteousness there that that makes him very difficult to fault? Well, yes yes, and no. I mean, Fowler hates it. It irritates him to no end that Pyle can't seem to see the, the bigger picture and that 
that I won't use the word evil because it's a little bit too silly, but that that uh, complicated interfering role that the Americans are playing. I mean, Pyle thinks he's there on on an economic aid mission. And if it means supplying General Tay with plastic explosives, and that's what he'll do, because that's just part of yes. the bigger picture. But exactly, he, he doesn't have the values, or I guess he doesn't have the the horizontal view of things that Fowler has. And that really frustrates him because he's getting attention, he's getting funding, and he's getting very close to taking away his love interest in the story, which ultimately he does do. He's a bit of a Boy Scout, Josh, would you agree, is Alden Pyle? Oh, yes. Yeah. He, he, he is a Boy Scout. But remember, we are looking at him through the lens of... Yes, a uh, very cynical... Fowler <laughs> and yeah. Graham Greene. Yeah. So yeah. we don't yeah. quite get a picture on who... I find a little disappointingly who uh-huh. Pyle was like, we're trying to justify his death through the murder. And I, and I can see an Ivy league guy, like this, this guy, he's from an upper class, new England family, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He goes to Harvard or wherever it was. Was it Yale or Harvard? I can't, I can't, remember. I can't remember. Yeah. And then of course he gets indoctrinated with those typical aspirations you get in that sort of situation in America, right? Like the idea of, you know, America as, you know, the world's police and this continues on and on and off in its own mm-hmm, form of colonialism, mm-hmm. uh, which of course, you know, leads to the Vietnam War. You have these connections between Pyle possibly being uh, a, a, the book version of this guy, Edward Lansdale. But really he's, I would say Lansdale would, would be someone who would, was probably very cynical and, and was very real politique. I don't see Pyle yeah. as real politique personally, maybe because York Harding says to be real politique, and then that's how he has to handle it, and yeah. that's what he uses as a tool. Yeah. But in the end, I think he's kind of like in this bubble or in some sort of like alternate world where America is the greatest thing on earth and democracy is the greatest yeah. thing on yeah. earth. And and what he's doing is, 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 is like natural law. Like it's almost like God-given... Uh, righteousness in the cause that he's taking in. And he just comes and walks in just like the American foreign policy and just does exactly what he wants to do because he believes it's right. And he believes that Fuang should be with him because he's they're, they're the same age. They both need to get married. Mm-hmm. They're both, you know, they need, they need to both be Christians and they both need to have children and have a family because that's the right thing to do. Meanwhile, Fowler is like the desiccated colonial mm-hmm. living in a loveless marriage that he can't divorce from. Uh, because of, you know, cultural traditions and, and whatnot. And it just kind of reinforces, I think, to Pyle that this has to be done. And he believes it has to be done. Yeah. And there's some great yeah. dialogue between the two of them, particularly when they're talking about Fuang and uh, Pyle's... Uh, Pyle, at this point, has her. I mean, I mean, we speak of her as property, but I think that's partly deliberate on, on Green's part as well. Yes. Um, he has her. Uh, he has won her across from... Um, from Fowler, and they're t- he's talking about bringing her home because to have a proper wedding, he needs to bring her home. And just the subtlety in the writing in that scene is fantastic because Fowler, without saying it, basically says, so this girl is only worth something if she's married in America. Like, why can't you have a traditional wedding here, you know? Yes. And of course he's bitter and he's pissed off about having to have it anyway. And so there's always a bit of venom in the dialogue, but it raises a very good point about this whole, you know, quiet... That this quiet takeover that America is trying to push, like, I will take you back and we'll have that proper wedding so I can introduce you to my family and you'll become mm-hmm. a homebred American girl, you know, the melting pot. It's all there just beneath the line. Yes, yes. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, the conflict between the two characters is is really quite quite strong in the story. Um, I do agree with you, though, that he is thinly sketched. And I know that that's deliberate yes. in part so that the allegory stands out. You know, the Americans, the British or the colonial French versus the Vietnamese are trying to take over the Vietnamese. But it would help if we saw his cracks and blemishes a little bit more so that we could judge him throughout on our terms instead of just Fowler's terms. That's true. And I guess that in terms of for us really to know Pyle, uh, do we consider him as a principal or is he just part of the supporting cast? Yeah. And, that, yeah. and that's really kind of the, uh, you know, the catch 22 here is that to me, like given the narrative perspective that Graham takes, we're getting the mm-hmm. first person narration of uh, Fowler where there is no possible way that we can learn who Fuang is. There's no possible way who we can learn who that's right. Pyle yeah. is what we're doing here in a way is we're going into the investigation, the story, because we're criticizing how yeah. Graham decided to construct the narrative. And maybe he should have possibly had a perspective of Pyle, first of all, and then maybe bringing Fowler into it. But that wasn't his objective. So that's true. I think we have to relegate Pyle away from the principles mm-hmm. and put him towards the uh, secondary supporting cast. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah don't, I don't disagree. Exactly. I don't disagree with you, and I also think it's important to remember at this point, Josh, um, that he is Graham Greene is a British author, and one of the things that makes him a British writer is the fact that this is biased from that British colonial, um, that old school viewpoint, and the perspective we get, everything we get is filtered through his eyes. I think it's an honest filtration. I think that there is, there's, there's nothing here that makes you say, go Britain, you're so great. Like, this is yeah. not a, a whopping writing, a piece of colonial, um, you know, it, it, this is not propaganda for the, for the for the empire. In fact, if anything, it's it's a signaling of, um, of times changing. But wallowing in the mire. Yeah, wallowing in the mire. Yeah. In the detritus. Well, Josh, you know, it, it is kind of funny that here we are on Lighten the Pipes talking about this one, because technically speaking, we're not really dealing with an investigation here, or at least a crime. But it does center around a murder. But we know when the story begins that there's been a murder. But it's it's really much more about... About it's a character piece. This it's an investigation of it one is. person and how a relationship with another and its yes. representative foreign power, how that comes to be and then comes to be spoiled. That's really what this story is. As I hammered out in my summary, mm-hmm. it's a narration slash confession mm-hmm. uh, to the crime that Fowler is going to be complicit in, which yeah. is the murder of Pyle. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in the invest- so how the story goes is that we begin the story with him lighting up the opium pipe and they're waiting for Fow- uh, Pyle to return. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at that in terms of having read the book, you know now that Fowler is uh-huh. lighting up the opium pipe because he doesn't want to think about what happened to Pyle yet. He knows that the, that the police are going to be there very soon and, uh-huh. and tell him. Uh-huh. So when you go back and read that chapter again after finishing the book, like the initial chapters, it has a different context altogether. It does. So, yeah, yeah. yeah it so, totally does. But it, but it makes, but it, but, but then the point, the whole point is, is that by the end of it, it makes you think because you, you, it takes you back to that beginning. And now you see how it all fold and how it on, how it all unfolded. Mm-hmm. And the most significant part of that is that we are getting narration that Green sticks to is that because we're seeing everything in Fowler's perspective, we actually, when it gets to the point where the murder is about to happen, we don't see it. 
Mm-hmm. We just know that it's happening. And that kind of me even makes it more suspenseful. So mm-hmm. props mm-hmm. to Green in creating that anxiety uh, throughout the story about when is it going to happen? How is mm-hmm. it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And that realization that after he has that meeting with Heng, yep. uh, then you know that, oh my goodness, that whole sequence is is suspenseful. Uh, the moments leading up to Pyle's death is because you know and you have that moral sort of judgment on Fowler, but at the same time, anxiety of knowing that Pyle is going to his death. And you almost feel sorry for him, despite how well Fowler has sold how much of a, I'm not going to say a prick, because I don't think Pyle is really that, because he's not trying to be that. He's not, uh, how much of a, uh, I'm trying to think of a negative connotation for Pyle that describes exactly what he is. Uh, it's almost like he's some like Viking berserker charging into a world that he doesn't understand, and mm-hmm. and uh, he's like with like kind of with like a berserker sort of IQ, and that's wrapped up, you know, in Christian morality and whatnot, and do goodism, and then he pays the price for it, and you can't help feel sorry for him because he's so naive in that way, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you understand Fowler's motivation, so. Again, yeah. a great mix of theme and of, of theme and um, and the writing helping to tell the story for us. And Graham does that brilliantly. In my uh, Green, we'll call him Graham. We're on a first name basis. We read yeah, one of yeah, 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 now. Yeah, for sure. yeah. Green's uh, narrative brilliance, in my opinion. Let's just talk for a quick second before we leave investigation about this structuring, this sort of back and forth way that reveals bits of the condition leading to Pyle's, well, his acquisition of Fuang. It's an ugly word, but we've, you know, we've already admitted that. It is what it is. And his eventual death. I mean, do you like that? Here I find that the structure does work. Like, I, I do like this quite a bit. It kept me very engaged because while I knew that Pyle dies, uh, because Vigo at the start tells us as much, or Vigo, if you want, um, Vigo, yeah. What what did you think of that back and forth? Like, would you have preferred something more linear, um, more of a whodunit? Or um, the narrative is constructed as a confession, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think it works expertly, and it the flashbacks are his own mind going over the events and dealing with his own guilt and dealing with his own perspective on things and dealing with uh, how that could be wrong or skewered. Like mm-hmm. it's biased, but it's also at the same time cynical. It questions everything that happens with the story. But it also gives you them, and he describes them to you the best that he can to make the world vivid for you yeah. uh, throughout the, throughout the story. Like even though you know we're getting this biased piece of this man describing a rival and how he wants to get rid of him for both personal and political reasons, uh, moral reasons why he wants to get rid of this man. At the same time, Graham uh, Graham Greene and Fowler are giving us a presentation of this period mm-hmm. that stands out very much in terms of like how the structure is put together, but also like we get this vivid descriptions of the conflict that is going on at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like the atrocities, the bombings, um, and just how he descri- and just how he describes the world. Like I, I, to me, I can smell and breathe the world that Fowler is living in, even though like it's a flashback, which would kind of make you dissociate it from it a little bit. He still has those like Hemingway-esque Chandlerian descriptions of things in the tale that just sticks out to you so well that it still feels real, even though it's jumping back and forth. So I had no problem whatsoever with that structure. I think okay, it worked cool. well for the novel, uh, right. despite, you know, maybe 
making Fuang and Pyle little less characters than they should have been mm-hmm. in the story. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. I really, really liked the way this book was set out. And I think that, I, th- I think that, you know, Fowler being cynical um, might also be a, a very quiet, stiff upper lip uh, cultural representation of how Britain itself was meant to feel watching its power slip, you know, or because while Britain itself may not have had a stake to play outside of being just kind of a, an adjunct or, you know, an ally of the French or something like that. I don't like, like, I really think that we're meant to see Fowler as the British perspective on Indochina. And as you, as you've said, it's, it's now a sleeping empire. It's a shrinking empire. It's, it's making way for the new kid on the block of America to start taking out parts and territories of what once it had a hold on. And I think that the cynicism of our character who just doesn't like this guy, um, and because he, he doesn't like Granger either, he doesn't like any of the Americans in this story. I think no. that um, I think that that's a view of of Britain, isn't it? Like, and I think that's what makes Graham Greene such an important cultural and uh, socially significant writer for the 20th century, at least in British terms. If you go back to of that cynicism, if you think about it, that scene in the milk bar before the bomb goes off, where he sees he's he's observing the two young American women that are there. And you can just feel his contempt for them when he, yeah. how, he how he's describing them, right? Mm-hmm. And because they're just oh, like they're la di da, la di da, you know, like they're just having they're having their milk bar, they're literal equivalent mm-hmm. of a Starbucks, basically. Absolutely, like, yeah. They don't even really you know, know right? what the, what's going on and all what they what they've become part of. Yeah, and that's yeah. the naivety too. It's yeah. like oh, yeah. my husband or my said I shouldn't stay here too long or something like that, or I should I shouldn't go there or something like that. So they get up and leave yeah. before the bomb goes off mm-hmm. and. The, the naivety and ignorance of the Americans on top of, you know, their blatant real politic that they're playing here mm-hmm. ruthlessly, I think just enrages Fowler even more so. Because at least I think in his own way, colonialism, British colonialism, is a matter of might equals right. And when the British take over a country, it's because, well, you people aren't taking care of yourself very well. I also, we need your resources. But at the same time, <laughs> there's an honesty to British imperialism. Yeah. As honesty to, to the ugliness. Imper- yeah. There's an honesty to the ugliness. But with America, mm-hmm. it's like kind of like they come with smiles, you know? And yeah. It's kind of like, it's have like our, that line. Have our line, candies. Have our sweets. Yeah. It's kind of like that line in, in Goodfellas where like Ray Liotta's character is describing about how, you know, when wise guys come to whack you right mm-hmm. they're they're all smiles and they're friendly and then they then they do it when you least expect it right yeah, yeah. and that's exactly kind of how america treats the world as its own kind of, <laughs> I, I suppose <laughs> no i think i think you're onto something that graham green would would view you know quite uh, quite accurately as well well josh before we move on um my mark for principles was four and my mm. mark for investigation, because we include the writing style, the writing structure, yes. not just kind of the the mystery itself. I went four and a half. Um, I okay. really enjoyed this story. I think it's one of the best written stories I've read in a long time. And comparing the writing good. here, Josh, to the writing in The Confidential Agent, which was good, but much earlier green, this guy oh. has grown as a writer so much. Oh, yeah. He, this he's book writing. Was on fire compared to Confidential Oh, man, Agent. yeah. Really, really is. And we liked that. We liked it enough to try this one out. But yep. I was really impressed with just how sophisticated and textured and, and kind of... Um, well, I mean, I'm running out of platitudes, but if you want, listeners, if you want a good book that, whether you like the story or the characters, you're going to be captured by the evocation of place 
and structural design. The Quiet American is is an excellent book for that. I'm, I'm not promising you're going to love the characters or the conflict <laughs> or even the microcosm. I, I thought it was quite clever, the allegory, the microcosms. But if, um, you know, if you're just looking for a book to, to pick you up and kind of transport you, this is the one to do it. Oh, absolutely. Um, as, as you said, a, a definitely a, a great improvement on The Confidential Agent. Uh, it had its flaws, that novel, and while we enjoyed it, it definitely had its flaws in terms of characterization and the writing as well. But mm-hmm. I found in this particular story, in terms of narrative and theme and character, everything was woven together so beautifully that mm-hmm. uh, I cannot, I want to give it a five, but I, I'm going to go with four and a half like you did. And I also did four and a half with the principles. Cool. I would have given principles five if I just mm-hmm. had a little more, more from on pile and yeah, from yeah. pile. But I know that couldn't happen. Mm-hmm. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, that's just my response from it. And yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I honestly admit that I honestly admit that I wanted a little bit more from the princi- from the other two characters. The other two uh, characters, yeah. It is the way that it is. It's they're just so beautifully written and mm-hmm. tragically written and humanly written that uh, you know I just couldn't help but be compelled by it. Aye. I well, think the th- the third pipe, the perpetrators. I think this is an easy one to me. Like you just got to go back to the principles and put it on Fowler. Fowler is the perpetrator here. Mm-hmm. Dang, okay, he, you know he, he he's a figure, but he's a pl- he's a he's a plot tool, a device to take t- a tool in a way that um, Fowler uses to take... He's almost like, you know, the hitman who he hires to take out his rival, in a way. But there isn't really much deep to uh, to, to hang. Was it hang or ding? I, for, I forget. Hang, yeah, Mr. Hang. Hang, hang, yeah, Mr. Hang. He's basically the Chinese agent, you know, working in Saigon, right? So it, it, it's, it's, it's helpful for him to get, to get rid of... Pile, Pile, yeah. Uh, He knows what what Pile's doing, so it works for him as well. There, you know, he seems like an intriguing kind of figure. I'm sure on screen he probably has a lot more presence, or he's interesting, or they foul it up and make him completely, I don't know, Fu Manchu esque. I don't know. (laughs) No, well, I I think Hang is important. I mean, we're talking supporting characters now, but I think he is important because of what he says. You know, at some point, supporting character. At some point. Uh, Mr. Fowler, you have to take sides. You know, that's what he says. Yeah. And the fact that he is kind of just like a shadowy figure who creeps in three or four scenes, that's it. I think that's that's important because it allows Fowler to kind of wash his hands of any guilt or maybe enable his conscience to say, well, I didn't really say go ahead and kill him. I just gave you information or said that I'll maybe go out to dinner with him. Or, you know, he never really says, we don't get that line of agreement where he says, yes, kill him. That's left off the page. But yeah. we, we know that that's what he has done. But, you know, Josh, I might take you to task on something here with respect to the perpetrator. You are absolutely correct in saying that, you know, if the story is about the murder of Pyle, then yes, Fowler is complicit. And Vigo or Vigo, uh, if you prefer, he knows that, you know, the French police know that, but they're also kind of accepting of it. They just kind of want him to play ball a bit, a little bit more straight. But, you know, I think it it's a difficult category for a different reason, because the story doesn't really give us a protagonist who's fully good. We don't have an antagonist no. who's fully bad. So in civil conflict, I feel like this is a more thematic thing, that boundaries yeah. are blurred. And, you know, like... You got it exact. Like, are the, is it the pilots who dropped the bombs up the Black River or the Red River? Are they are they the happily yeah. evil protagonists? Because Truett seems like a good man in the way that he was yeah, being portrayed. Absolutely. He's just doing his job, right? Yeah. But at and the I same mean, time... General Tay is a freedom fighter. He's profiteering through what he believes. But is, is he 
a perpetrator? What about the colonial powers who are scrimmaging for for advantage and position? Yeah. Are they the perpetrators? Granger, Even the Granger at, at is the most economic attaché. Well, yeah, Granger is the most the 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 most abusive and certainly the most outwardly clear perpetrator because he's morally rotten the way he treats women the lecherous way that he kind of operates you know has his swagger kind of tears through the streets of Saigon like he seems mm. and everything seems enabled his behavior seems to be enabled by the state that he represents and I feel like characters like that are are perpetrators and, and so I don't know that Fowler is meant to be seen as the perpetrator although legally he is complicit. I gave perpetrators a three and a half. I felt it to be a very interesting category and one that was difficult to score because the boundaries are so blurred. Um, it, it was. Yeah. I thought that was thematically all, all, they were all thematically relevant, where you could say Granger, where you could say the uh, Joe, the economic attache, mm-hmm. where you mm-hmm. could say Fowler, where you could say General Tay, where you could say Heng. Uh, even Fong's sister, those, you know, depending on how you look at Fuang's it. Even Fong's sister. Yeah, in a, in, in a way, yeah, because she basically was part of that, the whole changeover. And yeah, yeah. her reasons for getting her sister, was she there for her sister's happiness? No, she was there for her family, right? That's right. That's, yeah, what, yeah. that's what she was doing. She wanted to get her with a, with a rich American man, a doctor, hopefully, or some mm-hmm. sort of, you know, someone who had money. Like, she was very much into turning her culture over for American imperialism, right? She was happy to do that because money is what what matters in the end, right? Absolutely, Regardless of yeah. your of, tra- of tradition and empire. You as got it. The new empire is the one that has that has the money, right? Oh. The one that has the most power, the money, power is money, money is power, so on and so forth. What was the uh, score? Yeah, so I was four. You went As four. I said, across cool. the board, I thought that thematically, the, everything connected in that way. Nice. So that works for me. All right, let's uh, let's talk environs here. Uh, for my part, you know, I think that this is one of the real strong suits of the mm-hmm. novel. It is remarkably oh, yes. rendered, remarkably rendered, really strong description. Um, I, you know, I've written down, and I'm not going to share them, for the, you know, in the, in the spirit of brevity, but I've written down a series of wonderful quotations and kind of page references as I've been reading this book, and kind of my margins are decorated, and, and I haven't decorated a margin in quite this way since maybe maybe the long goodbye when we did that earlier in the year. Like, there are some beautiful passages in this book and expertly rendered. I think that this is some of the best, um, some of the best, I won't call it travel writing because it isn't travel writing, but you know, you're breathing the, you're breathing the air here that Green yes. is, is putting, on the, uh, putting on the page, you know? Yeah, the, the, tact, the use of like tactile writing and mm. uh, sensory description in this novel uh despite you know being flashbacks in a way being told to us sec- uh firsthand by someone yeah, who's yeah. experienced them they still come off the page as if you're smelling or seeing or or hearing these things you know yeah. or t- yeah. touching these things and it comes off quite strongly in the story and totally. uh, that really helps tell the story and i think also too if you have a visual idea about what Vietnam is like, which we do yeah. from pop culture and history and geography and whatnot, our own experiences. Um, it's very, it rings very true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some of these scenes too, they're not easy to watch, like the descriptions, they're not easy to digest. And I know that that, that can sound cliche when you're dealing with a story about conflict, right? But there is a there's a humanistic element to how some of these images are developed that that really strikes and I think really pulls readers in here. Like if you think about if you think about the description of the two young uh, armed guards in the Fat Dam Tower, you know who 
who Fowler and, and Pyle have to spend the, the night with. Like that stuff is 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 quite remarkable. And then of course you've got the the flight, the napalm flight over the Red River, you know, and that struck me too quite yeah sensi- th- that was yeah like that really that almost reminded me of just the way that the sequence like where truen the uh the bomber pilot he's dropping the bombs and he attacks like this little boat this fishing boat or something on on the paddy like uh-huh, that itself uh-huh. was pretty um Aye, horrific yeah. and yeah. and cold and ruthless and just kind of sh- really brought home you know what this war what the war what we know of vietnam is like is that collateral damage um and the complete you know um dismissal of of human life for the greater good so to speak and um that really put the cap on it f- for me like that was quite a stunning and horrifying sequence reminded me of that sequence like in full metal jacket where joker is be- is talking to the um the machine gunner on the Huey helicopter when they're flying and he's like shooting innocent civilians yeah. like from yeah. the air. It kind yeah. of reminded me of that a little bit too, a little more mm-hmm. subtle, of course, but same situation. Yeah. Um, it because wasn't quite as zealous. Impl- yeah. Cause at the same time it's like, they're in the middle of a war, they're fighting a war. They believe what they're doing is right. They're, you know, they're keeping away the communists and anyone part of them, but they also look down upon the natives even as their enemies in their own way. So there's that moral, confusion there as well you know when the enemy is otherized you don't see human lives there right so it's uh really eye-opening and this is another i think another goes towards that experience to me the french bombers and taking out that fishing boat and um and fowler seeing this it leads up to me in a in a very strong plot development how he comes to the decision to get rid of pile too yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, some of these images of war, which he sees firsthand when he goes north. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that does contribute to that that decision in his own mind to to do that. You know, maybe maybe it's worth sharing just a little bit while we're on environs because I sense that we're going to move off this fairly quickly. I'll just read this little bit during the during the dive bomb along along the Red River. Down we went again, away from the gnarled and fissured forest towards the river, flattening out over the neglected rice fields, aimed like a bullet at one small sampan on the yellow stream. The cannon gave a single burst of tracer, and the sampan blew apart in a shower of sparks. We didn't even wait to see our victims struggling to survive. We didn't even wait, oh sorry, but climbed and made for home. I thought again as I had thought when I saw the dead child at Fat Dim. I hate war. There had been something so shocking in our sudden fortuitous choice of prey. We had just happened to be passing. One burst only was required. There was no one to return our fire. We were gone again, adding our little quota to the world's dead. I put on my earphones for Captain Truan to speak to me. He said, We will make a little detour. The sunset is wonderful on the calcaire. You must not miss it. He added kindly, like a host who is showing the beauty of his estate, and for a hundred miles we trailed the sunset over the Bay de Long. The helmeted Martian face took, looked wistfully out, down the golden groves, among great humps and arches of porous stone, and the wounds of murder ceased to bleed. Like that, that contrast between death and killing, and then the beautiful sunset, which they chase as if they're just, they've just kind of scraped a piece of gum off their boots, and away they go, like, that, that sort of indifference that, that these soldiers have, for 
I think that that's something Green is really, really trying to communicate here in this writing. But again, beautif- beautifully, beautifully rendered there. That uh, the I, emotional spectrum, the the landscape itself, it's really, really strong. The connect and the disconnect at the same time, very, yeah. uh, very human. The the word of how he describes like the mountains, you know, the calcare, the the the. the like it describes them as chalk, right? Mm-hmm. That's what the mm-hmm. translation uh, yeah. literally means. Yeah. And then if you think about, you know, Vietnam, you think of all the jungle and the paddies surrounding, you know, like the whole fields of rice and stuff in the Southern Delta and everything. And, and then you see like the, the, in the North or towards the North, you see those chalk mountains and you mm-hmm. can visualize that so well. Mm-hmm. And totally. uh, yeah, it's just using those words like chalk to describe something as, uh, enormous and magnificent as like a mountain range and then bringing it down to earth in a sense. <laughs> I mean, we are on earth, of course, but just how it's described is that a very banal sort of way. Oh, it's like chalk on top of all of this morass of valleys and paddies and all this sort of stuff, right? Yeah, so. for sure. Well, I went five for the environments. It's my only full mark for the the, the pipe scoring with this book, but I'm I'm sticking to it because I think it's just a beautifully written book. And like I said, with the investigation, which was for me just a little mark shy, a little mark shy of a five, I I think that these two features, you know, the structure, the style, the, um, the, the descriptive writing, but also kind of the character bias that's woven into the investigation and the way that that's structured. I think that those are the points that will make this a, a standout book for any reader you know, any reader. I don't think boredom is going to come into play here. If you like pictures, if you like images, if you like descriptions, if you like humanity, if you like doubt, if you, you know, I mean, this is a story that's going to, I think it's going to touch you in some way emotionally. Um, even though... Once you yeah. get past that obstacle of the narrative structure, which yeah. I, some people will have <clears throat> yeah. obstacle, will have issues with that. And I totally understand that. You know, there's different ways of how books are written and their perspective of the authors wants to show you that you may not considered and it wants to tell you the story and just remember that the author wants to tell you the story in this fashion you know like it's not like he's trying he's not making you read it but this is the way he's presented it to you and you can like that or dislike that but the what the reward that you get for accepting that and moving forward um you reap great benefits as a reader in mm-hmm. in situations like this when the environment when the environmental descriptions are so strong and I agree with you fully that this is a number five for me in terms of uh, oh. environs. Yeah. What, what did you think of the secondary characters? I've already showed my hand in, in saying that I didn't give it a full mark, but I mean, where are you with this? I'm at a straight four. The characters, mm-hmm. secondary characters were more than serviceable. They were thematically um, important. Yeah, they the were point. narratively that's a, that's a important. Uh, they weren't, you know, three-dimensional as I would have liked, but I also understand that we're seeing this through the lens of one person. So how can they possibly be three-dimensional because we don't get their side of the story? They appear as like ghosts of what their characters would be in the story, reminders of, and they tell us what this world is is like and they reinforce um, Fowler's vision as characters. So I think they work strongly in that fashion. But you Um, know, Josh, I do wonder, like, when you're writing a story about conflict like this, how how successful is a third person narrative going to be? Unless you're trying to write it as nonfiction, and even that comes with its bias. How how effective yes. can you be as an omniscient narrator? Because everybody views conflict from a bias. Everybody has a stake or a claim. Everybody has an opinion. 
I mean, the British have theirs, the French have theirs, the American have theirs. And yes, the first person limits us to only Fowler's interpretation of things and his skewed image of people and whatnot. But I do wonder, like... Yes, yeah. Um, Granger, we've already talked about, you know, he's rough and rowdy. He is the blueprint of what's loud about America. And that comes through very, very clear in the story. What do you think of his comeuppance? Yeah. <sighs> Is it a comeuppance, though? Like, is it really like a comeuppance? His, I, it's interesting that, like, you know, his son is given, you know, what killed FDR, a well-known <laughs> American figure, right? Uh, the polio. But his son is going to survive, possibly. I think he learns in the end that his son lived, right? Survived yeah. the night or something? Or yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, like, the thing is, is, like, I'm such a horrible person, and now my son is dying, but he doesn't seem to feel re- no, remorse he's at, about he's it. Part, he's, more, he's partying he's at the more, restaurant. He's partying. He's more concerned about his son than he is about, you know the reasons maybe he deserves this on a moral on a moral level for his actions but i mean he doesn't really do he's not really a terrible person no. per se like he's just we don't uncouth. Un- he's just uncouth yeah. yeah so i don't know if the novel's really punishing him Vigo? though to me is Vigo? like he's he's a sketch to me i liked I mean, him though i thought he was cool i liked I him cool. but i wanted i wanted more of him he reminds me a lot of uh on our other podcast we did charade and he kind of reminded me oh, yeah. of yeah. uh Inspector Grandpierre, you know, in the mm-hmm. movie Charade. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone's in their pajamas. Or, yeah. Well, but anyway, I, I didn't see him. I thought I saw him as more calculated and less effusive. I saw him as a bit more guarded. Vigo, I, I really liked him. I thought that yeah, uh, he was good. He's a cool character. Um, but he himself, you know, is a dying colonial figure, isn't he? Like he's not going to be around for much longer. Day, yeah. And so he's just trying to kind of pass the time and collect his paychecks by doing the best job he can do. And I think that's one of the reasons why he doesn't play the political too. game too. Yeah. Oh, totally playing the political game, but he feels safer um not pushing Fowler, I think, than yes. he might with with someone else, right? Um Mr. Hang, we've already gone through him. Um Dominguez was cool, but really only in an assistant way because he's he just goes and does the meetings that Fowler doesn't want to take. And but he he is the one that puts he he's the one that puts Fowler together with Mister Heng, isn't he? Yes, he is. That's yeah. correct. He's part got, of the story um, in that fashion. And then we got uh, Fuang's sister as well, who has an important role in the plot, even if she isn't really uh, too present on the page. She uh, you know she encourages her sister to go away with Pyle, but then of course yeah uh, yeah that doesn't she stick. Absolutely does. Would, and she's on the American side too because she worked at the American embassy. Yeah, that's right. Or yeah. right at the, with the economic attaché, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, trying to think else. And Fuang, of course, who is yeah. like I wouldn't call her a principal, unfortunately. Uh, well, no, well, I mean, she is. I suppose she's the prize, right? She's the prize. She's Vietnam in a way. Yeah. Oh, she totally is. And I mean, all that feeds back into the allegorical reading of the story that you set out quite nicely for us. But, you know, uh, in summation and in closing, um, The Quiet American was a very enjoyable book. I I use that term loosely because there's lots of passages that are not at all enjoyable, but it's a very well-written piece of literature. I guess that's the better way to describe it and to articulate my thoughts. Is it the best book I've written or I've read all year? It's up there. Um, It really is. This year, I've read two excellent books for the podcast, books that I will remember, The Long Goodbye and The Quiet American. And I've been really, really pleased to to have got this one. And I'm I'm just delighted you sent it to me, man, because I wouldn't have read it myself. But yeah, I've uh, really enjoyed this one. So will I read it again anytime soon? Meh, maybe. I can see myself teaching this, you know. And if you were to introduce someone to Graham Greene's work, would you choose The Confidential Agent or would you choose The Quiet American? 
Well, I've only read the two green texts. I'm very uninitiated still. Uh, and by Green's own admission, The Confidential Agent was a quick thriller. He wrote it in a few weeks, right? While he was having an affair with his landlady's daughter or something like that. Like when he was yeah. renting that apartment or whatever it is. Yeah. So, I, I mean, The Quiet American is the better book. In my opinion, there's no, there's no real discussion there. But The Confidential Agent is a fun story and it is well written. Yeah. But the prose, the... The architecture of the of the writing is so much more advanced here than it is there. So I would say, as as a sample, if I'm only going to salvage and save one of the the two green books, yeah, I'm going to pick this one. But I don't know. I'd recommend it yet. I'd need to read more of his work, man. And I'm keen to do it. So our man in Havana. Let's put it on next year's read list. Yeah, or even for example, like the power glory. Although yeah. that's more of like a Roman Catholic epic. One of the but Catholic I'd be curious texts. To see, yeah. yeah, I'd be curious to see. You know how that how his writing the shows in that and, and how that compares to kind of get the full spectrum of Graham's style, right? But that said, let's just take our final puff of the pipe here. Mm -hmm. uh, I gave the supporting cast or the secondary characters, uh, I, I gave it a four. Yeah, and so did I. So we, we, we saw this story eye to eye. We both liked similar things, as often does happen with us here on the show. Not always, but often. Not always. It and... Does. Um, yeah, this is a hearty recommendation for both of us, I think. Yes, um, I was captivated by the novel. Um, it's one of those books when you're reading it going, damn, this is good. And uh, it's a lot more deeper than, you know, books I've read recently. I mean, we've been mm -hmm. reading mystery novels that have been, in most cases, yeah, well-written. Yeah, yeah, of course. But yeah. they don't come to the complexities or the the feels that you get for a story like for, for a story like this and uh, a story that kind of makes you look at the world in a, in a way that you never, that you normally don't, not that you haven't looked in a way that you haven't looked at it before, but in a way that you normally don't look at it or yeah. Yeah, that you don't often look at, I suppose. I got you. Yeah. So Josh, in, in closing then, let me leave you and the listener with just a couple of select quotes from the story, uh, a taste of some of this wonderful writing that Green weaves here in the tale. These are random quotes. I won't contextualize any of them. Just see what you think of them. She held Pyle's dog on a leash. A black chow with a black tongue. A too black dog. It was the economic attaché. He beamed down at us from the terrace above. A great warm welcoming smile, full of confidence, like the man who keeps his friends because he uses the right deodorants. The canal was full of bodies. I am reminded now of an Irish stew with too much meat. The lieutenant said, Have you seen enough? Speaking savagely, almost as though I had been responsible for the deaths. Perhaps to the soldier, the civilian is the man who employs him to kill, who includes the guilt of murder in the pay envelope and escapes responsibility. I mean, if you, if you like that type of stuff, this is the book for you, deep, questioning, probing sentences, filtered through a cynical character, yes, but really make you think of stuff. And I wouldn't, I don't think it's too, too grandiose to say that this book makes you think about your own place in the world, your own biases and your own behavior towards other people. It did do that with me. Um, will it stick? Will I become a better person for reading the book? Well, I'd like to think so, but who, who really knows? You can tell me next month. You could tell me next month. <laughs> find out. Find out and see. <laughs> anyway, pal, look, jokes aside, it's it's been fun reading this one. And uh, Lighting the Pipes will be back soon in just a couple of weeks' time. We're going to do a quick episode, a very quick episode, on John Buchan's The 39 Steps, the first of his Richard Haney creations. And um, I'm looking forward to that. 
Yeah, a quick episode for a quick book based on the yeah. uh, length of it. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, check us out on on the socials. Uh, get in touch if uh, if you want to leave some comments or give us a review. That that would be fantastic. And we'll see you back here on Lighten the Pipes very soon, indeed. Good evening, or good morning, or whatever time like it might Vince, be. Vincent Price there, <laughs> or Hitchcock. Yes. Good evening. Good evening.